You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where uncommon circle songs that aren't meant for children are kind of hard to find. Put your hair back, you get to leave, eleven gallows on your sleeve, shallow figured, winner's paid. Eleven shadows Way out of place Standing to soon Shoulders high in the wind Standing to soon Shoulders high in the wind everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi there, my name's Sean Ingle, and I like talking about Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones that come out between cover dates June 1990 and November 2004, and most specifically the ones dealing with Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner, which, fortunately, we have in this issue. Well, again, Guy is just barely there, but I love Guy Gardner so much, I'm proud to mention it any time that I can. And the issue that he's going to be in is Green Lantern number 134, which is uh, part three of the When Rome Burns story, a story which pits Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, against a Yellow Ring user that's not Sinestro. No, he's a psychopath named Alex Nero, and Kyle has to fight Nero while he watches the city burn. See, you get it? It's, it's a reference to Roman antiquity, and yeah, I'm, I'm certain you get it. Plus, we're also continuing our look at the Green Lantern Circle of Fire storyline this time out, dealing with Green Lantern teaming up with the twin Green Lanterns, Hunter and Forest. Get it? Yeah, because they're green. Yeah, not my favorite. And the Atom goes basically through a scientific, methodical search of the certain villains who could possibly have created the character of Oblivion, the mad villain that's going to take over the universe this week yeah it's a good story though by brian k vaughn although i might have some things to say about the art but we'll get to both that as well as the green lantern issue and some of you wonderful folks emails as soon as i finish up with these podcast promos so after i play these promos for some podcasts that you should all be listening to we're going to take a little break and when we get back we'll start right in with our coverage of Green Lantern number to battle stations, engage.
Captain Picard is a pain, isn't he? Interesting. No redeeming qualities. I think you should be destroyed. The great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to Earth. Go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, or they'll destroy you. We are dangerous. What can I offer except myself? Join the two true freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, for Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month, the freaks will bring you two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and more. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm, I'm just a little confused lately. I Yeah, what else is new? Well, you know... M- more than usual, I tried to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we have a trouble finding. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> oh, you took the words you know, right out of my mouth. They're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You no, know, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed. What's yeah, that? Back to the Bins feed. You got to go to iTunes. You look for look up back to the bins, and you subscribe to the back to the bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on? All right. So if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm gonna go on to iTunes, and I'm gonna click on Back to the Bins, and I'll find Back to the Bins and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed, you subscribe to the show, you subscribe to whichever show you want, and then you get it. It's that simple, you just gotta go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the bins. Where? An Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on 2TrueFreaks.com. You want them, you get them. You got them? All the shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so feed. the feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Uh, Scott, could you tell him? Hey, man, don't don't drag me into this because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. And we are back. And what you just heard there was a brand new promo for Back to the Bins, one of my favorite shows on the Two True Freaks Network. 
Now, if you haven't noticed, if you're subscribing in iTunes, there's been a little shakeup at the Two True Freaks website. Most of the shows that were on the Two True Freaks proper feed have been divided into their own personal feeds. I mean, that's the way it was before. Like, if you wanted to get Back to the Bins, you'd go to the Back to the Bins feed. If you wanted to get Hey Kids Comics or Palace of Glittering Delights, you went to those individual feeds. But you could subscribe to just the main Two True Freaks feed and get all of the shows there. We've done a little switching up at the Two True Freaks site, and now if you just subscribe to Two True Freaks, the number two, the main Two True Freaks feed, you'll only be getting the Comics Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monthly, and the brand new Growing Up Star Wars, as well as Commentary Monthly, and I think Walking Dead Wednesday as well. If you want any of the other shows, Palace of Glittering Lights, Hey Kids Comics, Back to the Bins, Avenger Spotlight, My Show, Just One of the Guys, Trentus Magnus, Hope of All Trades, Who True Freaks, The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, or any shows like that, you'll have to go to their individual feeds and subscribe to them in iTunes. Now, if you're just going to the website and uh, catching them, right now they're still all listed on the main page at the website, but I believe maybe by the time the show comes out, there should be some redesign. I'm not privy to all of that, unfortunately, and besides, it's well beyond my pay range. Mike Voyles is the brains behind that, so he'll be the one who will be doing that. But if you're wanting to get this show and you've only been subscribing to the Two True Freaks main page, you'll now have to go to iTunes and search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys, and that's where you'll be able to get it if you subscribe through iTunes. If you subscribe through an RSS feed catcher or you just go to the website and listen to it there or download it from there, there shouldn't be any problems. But I just wanted to let you know if you were listening to the Two True Freaks feed proper and the show wasn't showing up on it, that's why that is. We're all relegated to our little individual fiefdoms of Two True Freaks. It's a nice way to streamline the, the I guess, the podcast feed so that people who are subscribing to Two True Freaks just get the shows essentially with Scott and Chris in them. All the other all the other characters like Andy, Trentus, Paul, Bill, myself, Hero, Dave Atterbury, uh, Luke Giaconetti, all of those shows, Hope Molinax, I'm trying not to forget anyone because I love all you guys. They all get their own individual feeds that you'll need to subscribe to. So go ahead and if you haven't done that yet, please go ahead and do that. They made an announcement about this by the time this came out probably about three weeks ago. So hopefully all of you have changed that up and if you are still listening to me, well... Thank you for doing that. Hopefully you're all still listening to me and you're all still writing into me because we've got to take a look at some email this time out. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and first of all, I'd like to thank everyone who's been writing in over the past couple of weeks. Ever since I did the uh, crossover with uh, Green Lantern versus Aliens, I brought in a lot of guest hosts. Most of the guys from the vault, well, all the guys from the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror, Chris Honeywell, Chris the hair metal hero Tyler, and Luke Giaconetti were all kind enough to come onto the show. And I also got to speak with my good friend Thomas DJ as well when we talked about issue 129, the beginning of the Judd Winnick run. So that was really fun to do that. Unfortunately, it did leave me with sort of a backlog of emails. So I'm going to try and get through as many of these as I can before I start in the episode today. So let's go ahead and start out. The first email really doesn't have that much to say. But it is very important. It's from my good friend from the Great White North, Scott Davis. He wrote in and actually had the actual physical copy of the book Secret Files and or- Secret Files and Origins Number Two, which, if you remember when I did that podcast, I said it was missing some uh, 
missing some comics from it. And what they were were fantastic. Essentially, they were a Green Lantern and Flash team-up from the various eras made to be sort of akin to a hostess Twinkie ad, except instead of talking about Twinkies, they were talking about secret files, uh, energy bars, and it was just great. Some of the artwork was by... Let's see here. Some of it was by Joe Staten. There was another one by George Genty. I still can't quite make out who it was, who, who was doing the one with uh, Hal Jordan and Barry Allen Flash, but it's just really fun stuff. And the final one with Wally and Kyle is sort of metatextual and that they know that they're in an advertisement and, you know, Kyle is kind of irked that Wally drug him into doing it. So it's really funny stuff. Plus, like I said, there's a Fred Hembeck strip in there where Kyle Rayner is essentially a clown that's given a ring by a guardian of the universe, and it's typical Fred Hembeck stuff, so it's really funny. So I can't tell you how much that I appreciate you sending me this stuff, Scott. It was it was really fun to look forward to look at, and I, I I need to go find this issue somewhere, if not pick it off my comic book shop because this is just funny stuff. And I'm sorry that I didn't get to tell all of you about it from the beginning, but at least now you know kind of what's going on with it. The next email comes from Chris and Cindy Franklin. They're the host of the Supermates podcast, and right now, uh, as uh, this issue or as this episode goes live, they're right in the middle of their Halloween episodes, uh, the House of Franklinstein episodes. As of current recording time, which probably they will have released an episode after that, they did uh, a show on the Bride of Frankenstein, the James Whale movie from I think 1936, maybe. 35? I can't remember. i horrible with dates. But they also did an issue of Superman, where Superman fought both Dracula and Frankenstein. And he took out Dracula by superheating a balloon, balloon filled with hydrogen and compressing it with super strength while heating it up with heat vision to create a miniature sun, which hurt Dracula. Yeah, neither of the Franklins were too impressed with that uh, that super feed. But anyway, Chris and, Cindy, or Chris and Cindy write in about 80-page giant number two, I believe, and they say, Hi, Sean, I just wanted to drop you a line and let you know about your latest episode of Just One of the Guys. I will confess that while I'm a fan of Kyle in passing, I never much cared for Guy. Sorry. No problem. Guy is an acquired taste. I will give you that. He continues saying, despite this, I've been wanting to try this show it's ever since I, I'm sorry, he says, I've been wanting to try this show since I enjoyed the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. Whew. Yeah, it's a mouthful. And your guest spots on other shows I frequent. So since this episode featured guest spots by such a great cadre of podcasters, including my pals Rob and Andy, I thought it was a perfect time to sample the show. Well, I'm glad that, you know, Rob and Andy were able to bring you in. Uh, it was great working with all those podcasters and yeah, that second 80-page giant was just a barrel of fun. Continuing on, Chris says, I was quite a fan of DC's 90s revival and their 80-page giants. Between these and the secret files, you really got some nice stories by creators other than the usual suspects. It seemed like the creators were just having fun with these short get-in, get-out stories, just as you and your guests did covering them. Looking forward, out, looking forward to checking more shows out from your back catalog, Chris Franklin of the Supermates Podcast. Well, thank you, Chris. I know that I recommended you go check out, uh, I think I said the Bo Smith interview, and you said that you were pretty, you really enjoyed that, and you were a 
if not a fan, that you enjoyed Bo Smith and you know his writing. Um, I also would recommend listening to uh, Michael Bailey and Thomas DJ covering the uh, issues 50 and 51, The uh, basically the transition from Hal Jordan to uh, Kyle Rayner issues uh, that I did way back then. Those all can be found in the archives at twotruefreaks.com. But thanks again, Chris and Cindy, for writing in. I'm just going to assume it's Chris, but hello, Cindy. Thanks for writing in as well. Opening the next letter, we get another letter from Scott Davis, again, my wonderful listener to the Great White North, and his letter is entitled The Effin Effigy Corps. Yep, they they are effers. He says, Hi, Sean. I just had my second child last week, and coincidentally, it coincides with the end of the Mars run, just like you. Crazy how that happens. I might need to draw upon your vast experience of raising two kids. Uh, you don't want to know about my experience with raising kids. I've I can't say that I've been, I'm a Dr. Bill level of parent. You know, I can remember my kids' birthdays, though, so that's good. He continued on saying, it's pretty wild so far, but fun too. Here are some comments I had on some issues I read recently, and all of these before Baby 2 arrived. It says, Greenlander number 119, this was another great story by Mars about Kyle meeting Hal as a Spectre. I'm actually enjoying Hal as a Spectre so far, and the cover was pretty nice too. I was pumped on page six when I heard that Radu got lucky with Kyle's agent Simone. Oh, Radu is a playa. It sounds like they were at it all night. Oh, my goodness. When I got to the last page, I almost dropped my, my Tim Hortons coffee when I saw that Radu was about to get shot. Yeah, the it's it's nice to see that Radu as a character was expanded a little bit more over than just, you know, the barista and landlord for Kyle. So I enjoy those couple of issues. Continuing on, he says about Greenlander 120, this was an awesome issue about Radu fighting the, the sniper Dracul. I find it strange that Dracul waited for Radu to be with someone, Kyle, before shooting the glass window because Radu was all alone entering the store the night before. Is this one of the worst mistakes ever in a comic book when Donna is colored green like Jade? Well, I think, you know, if you have listened up to this current point, you would know what's going on with all that. I'm blaming the colorist, he says, for this, and the editor, of course. Brutal. Uh, issue 121, he said, This was a cool issue when Kyle wakes up finding himself married to Jade and fighting alongside the new core. Damn, Janie was definitely, was definitely going down on Kyle on page 5 until that stupid cock blocker guardian interrupted. Yeah, um, yeah, there was probably something going to happen right there, and Comics Code and the Guardians wouldn't allow it. Unbelievable, he says. I must admit the Effigy Corps looks cool, and I agree that they kind of look like the Red Lanterns from the Jeff Johns run. Do you think Kyle was hallucinating in the last issue when Donna was green? Well, again, if you've read ahead, you know what's going on, so I think you will answer your own question then. The mistake in this previous issue was so bad that it might be on purpose. That's probably right. I think this was a great issue, and Banks's art was excellent. I agree. The artwork for that issue was a lot better than some of the stuff we've seen before. I think that was because he had a... Maybe he had a different inker on there. I can't remember whether it was Andy Smith inking him back then, but yeah, I remember the art to be sp particularly good for that issue. Greenlander 122. Another great issue, and Effigy is really starting to become a great villain for Kyle. At the end of the issue, Kyle picked Effigy over Jenny and went to the door of fire without her. What does that say for the strength of their marriage? Hmm. I guess, you know, the marriage not working out so well. There you go. 
He continues, I agree that the FG Corps members, one of the FG Corps members could be Zilius Sox from the current Red Lanterns. I'm going to play spoiler for you, but I think Zilius might have been killed in one of the recent issues. I'm not sure, though, because uh, you don't see the body. Well, uh, I think listening to Lantern Cast, which if you're not doing, if you want to know what's going on in current Green Lantern comics, go listen to Lantern Cast. Chad and Mark are doing a great job over at that show, and they're actually probably by this time already up to issue 200 or episode 200 and congratulations to them. That's, that is awesome getting to that number of episodes. And even though unfortunately Chad and Mark weren't there from the beginning, they've taken up the reins really well and done the show great. So go check out, if you want to know about current Green Lantern stuff, listen to Lantern Cast. Good, good show. He finishes up, uh, he finishes up with issue 122. Does FG wear lipstick? Maybe in that sort of, uh, Oh, not Michael Stipe, but Robert Smith type way? Could be. It really looks like he wears it throughout the issue, and on page six you mentioned that FC looks like he's trying to flirt with Kyle, so I'm thinking that Mars is purposely, purposely making Effigy a flamboyant villain. Great issue. Flamboyant? I, I get what you're doing there. Greenlander number 123 says, This was another good issue of Kyle traveling to find the controllers. The cover is nice, and Banks' art is excellent, and the splash on page 9 of Kyle charging up his ring was excellent as well. In this issue, we get the explanation of why Donna was green in issue 120, but was it a fake-out, or is it Mars just trying to cover up a bad mistake? I think it was a fake-out from the beginning. I'll give Mars credit, he says, and say that it was a really good fake-out. Great issue. Green Lantern 124. This was another great story from Mars about Kyle confronting the controllers, and you were hilarious about describing how Kyle is naked on page 8, covering up his quote-unquote little rainer. Yeah, comics code won't allow the uh, depiction of <coughs> male members on screen. The art was a bit off this issue, as the splash page on page 18 with Kyle and the Construct Green Lantern Corps was awesome. Overall, this was a great four-issue story arc. Unfortunately, this is near the end of Mars's run, but I really feel that he's still in his prime, and it's too bad he's leaving. I guess we can say he's going in on top. But wow, the advertisement for the Superboy porcelain statue is 175 US, but 280 in Canada? <sighs> no wonder everyone was crossing the border to go shopping in Seattle every weekend around this time. I can completely imagine, you know. I, I know, I look at the just the prices on comics, and it's at least a dollar more it's kind of ridiculous. I can understand why in Canada, if you could slip into the States and just, oh, buy a couple of things over here that would work over there, whether it be comics or DVDs or what, why you'd be doing that. But uh, Scott finishes up saying, Sean, you mentioned under breath that LeBron James was the NBA's version of Kanye West. Can you explain? Does James's wife look like Kim Kardashian or something? Um... No, uh, LeBron James is just, in my opinion, kind of a jerk in the way that Kanye West is kind of a jerk. Sure, he's good at what he does, but he likes to tell you about how good he is at what he does. And that, in my opinion, makes him a giant douchebag. So, sorry Kanye West, and sorry LeBron James, but you don't have me as one of your fans. Anyway, he finishes up saying, thanks, Sean, and have a great week, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott, for writing in. I always love hearing from you. And I think we'll try and squeeze in one more email before we get to the coverage of the books. This one is from my good friend, Luke Giaconetti. If you don't know what Luke does, he does the Daikaiju podcast 
and the Tokusatsu podcast, Earth Destruction Directive, over at 2TrueFreaks.com. He also co-hosts the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, and he does guest spots on other shows. I know recently he was on episode 200 of the Fire and Water podcast, where he talked about Hawkman drawing the short straw about having to take on Superman in JLA 200. And yeah, Hawkman having to go up against Superman, that's that's really a shame for Hawkman. But anyway, Luke writes in with the title, Just One of the Guys, Gokaiger and Ultraman. And he writes in saying, Sean, hey man, a couple of things. First off, thanks again for having me on Just One of the Guys. Always glad to have you on. Anytime Luke comes on a show, he always brings his A-game, and he did it there as well. I loved having him on. I just finished listening to your episode 126 this morning, and that was truly an epic run of guest stars you pulled together for the 80-page giant. Again, uh, I was more impressed with uh, what they pulled together for uh, episode 100 of the uh, Fire and Water podcast. That was some good stuff as well. He says, I was really impressed, and I can't wait to hear our fellow vault guys talking aliens. Secondly, you express some interest in the scene from Pirate Sentai Gokaiger, where all the Super Sentai heroes come together. Now, if you don't know what he's talking about, there's obviously this show that eventually became the Power Rangers and was repurposed in the United States as the Power Rangers, but it was called Pirate Sentai Gokaiger, and we were talking about the opening part of the show, which had essentially every one of these Sentai, Super Sentai characters coming to fight these aliens. It was just basically, for the American version, it was every Power Ranger ever kicking ass. And it was epic. I'm not even that big of a Power Rangers fan, and I watched that and going, wow, I've got to see that. But he goes on with that, and he says, that event is called the Legendary War, and it's actually the first scene in the first episode of Gokaiger. This page over at Overtime is where the series starts, and he gives the uh, page there, and it's Super Sentai Gokaiger page slash 13. And uh, Overtime has done all of the movies and specials as well. Their torrents are generally very fast, and I like the MP4 formats because they're hard sub, just play the file, no need to download the subtitles separately, and they play on my tablet. I think you might enjoy it. And Luke also... uh, introduced me to this Overtime website, and there was another one, Tokuger, I think, that just looks absolutely bizarre. It's about, it's about, I guess it's about a Super Sentai on a train, on a sort of bullet train, and I need to check that out as well, because I've loved what Luke has brought me into with the uh, Ultraman stuff, and I'm looking forward to this. But the rest of the email is kind of, well, not really private, but it's about talking about another show, so I won't go into that, but Luke finishes up with, I hope things are well on your end, Luke. Well, Luke, thank you for writing in. It's always a pleasure getting the getting to talk to you and getting to read your emails because you always have something clever and informative to add to the show. But I think we're going to knock it on the head there for emails, close up the email bag, and go ahead and get right in to our coverage of Green Lantern number 134. Green Lantern number 134 was cover dated March 2000. No, it wasn't. It was cover dated March 2001. I'm misread that. It was covered in March 2001 and released on January 3rd of 2001, the very first comic of Green Lantern in the New Millennium. The cover price was 225 US and 375 Canada, and the title was While Rome Burned Part 3, All That Glistens. 
The writer was Judd Winnick, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Jordy Ensign, letter was Chris Eliopoulos, colorist Moose Bowman, associate editor Michael Bright, and editor was Bob Schreck. Carrying the battered and bruised body of Alan Scott, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner faces down the madman who did this to him, the yellow ring-wielding psychopath, Alex Nero. Kyle tries to open a dialogue with Nero, but all he gets is a rant about how he was here since the dawn of time and had no parents and blah 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 blah. Kyle realizes that Nero is cuckoo for Cocoa Buffs and tries to fly off to take Alan to a hospital, but Nero denies these perceived villains' passage. Of course, this leads to Kyle having to hand down some consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights deserved, to the Amber antagonist. But Nero isn't like any of the former foes that Kyle has faced, and it takes everything he can throw at him just to keep him at bay. Eventually gaining the upper hand, Kyle quickly dashes off to get Alan to that hospital, while Nero stands atop the bridge, proclaiming that he will set the world free. Cut to Kyle's apartment, where Alan is using his powers to help him recover from the attack. Sentinel demands that Kyle get out there and find Nero before he truly causes some tragedy with the yellow ring of his, and Kyle is taken aback by Alan's intensity. Leaving the bedroom, Kyle goes to talk with John and Guy, who are over to check on Kyle and Alan. Kyle tells John that Nero seems to be much worse than any other villain he's faced, and he just wishes he had a better idea of who he was dealing with. Guy points the duo towards the Expeditional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, 2009, all rights observed, update that tells of the Bellevue mental escapee, Alex Nero. Moments later, Kyle is meeting with the psychiatrist that was taking care of Alex. He tells Green Lantern that Alex was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder in his early teens, and had his father kill his mother and then himself at age 15. The doctor points out that there was speculation that Alex committed the murders, but there's never been any incidents of violent behavior coming from him until about two months ago, when he attacked his landlord. He was submitted to Bellevue, where he started to talk about visitations from gods, from an area that he called Quard. Realizing who is behind all this, Kyle asks for more information on Nero, and the doctor gives him some of the sketches that he drew during his institutionalization. Sketches very much like the constructs Kyle had to fight. Sometime later, we see Green Lantern standing on a rooftop addressing someone about Nero. Kyle says that he's delusional, imaginative, and wielding a ring much like his own. Saying that stopping him might be next to impossible, Cal tells the members of the Assembled Justice League that to save the world, they might just have to kill Alex Nero. Now, I think I mentioned on the last episode, and... I'll just sort of reiterate it again. I'm starting to think these stories are specifically being written to fit into a trade paperback format. I don't feel like the books are quite so decompressed that the story within them seems inconsequential. So it does, however, feel a little more that they're not writing individual stories, that they're writing arcs now. And I never really felt that it got that way except for specific arcs that you knew that they were doing in the Ron Mars run. Looking at, uh, say, Emerald Knights, the six-issue storyline where Hal Jordan came back. This definitely does have that feel of writing for the trade. And 
it's about that time, you know, that the writing for the trade idea sort of came into focus. Again, I think Nero is a good foe for Kyle, especially now that we see that he's an artist as well. Defining him as an artist and pitting him up against Kyle, who's got artistic talents as well, is a really good... It's a really good sort of yin and yang for the character. They're both characters who are very creative, who are very knowledgeable, who are given power rings that allow them to create whatever they want. So it's a nice idea pitting them against each other. So, yeah, a bit more decompressed, but not totally a decompressed story. Kind of written for the trade, but overall pretty good. But let's go ahead and work our way into the story as a whole and go in specific notes on the story. First of all, with the cover, um, meh. Again, nothing really spectacular. We've had a sort of spate of average colors recently. Alex's right hand here looks kind of wonky. Uh, his thumb looks oddly proportioned on the hand, and his fingers look a bit too odd. However, I do like some of the constructs here, and I like that they're integrating the logo into the, uh, the fight or the battle here with uh, one of Alex's constructs crawling on the uh, logo above Kyle. So I guess that's kind of a neat aesthetic design. Moving into the book, page three, I think Winnick does a really good job at giving Nero some creepy, crazy speak. I'll give you an example here. Uh, when Kyle first encounters Nero, he says, I'm Nero. I am the war protector of this realm. I battle the hidden evils that dwell. Dwell well as they may. Forever now, forever then. Yeah, that's... That's pretty bizarre. That's that's a significantly more effective villain than Sonar. It's like, I'm going to blast you with sound waves. So, yeah, Winnick's bringing the creepy in. It, it makes this villain a lot more interesting than some of the ones prior to him. Page four, there seems to be something that Nero has against parents or parents in general, and it ties into the idea that there was a possibility that Nero killed his parents uh, that we'll get to later in the book. So, yeah, creepiness abounds. Page six, I'm glad that Kyle's first thought here is rather than to have a knockdown, dragout fight with Nero, his first thought is to get Alan to a hospital. I think this really this really shows what how Kyle has progressed as a character, that he realizes that Human life is more important than trying to battle down these building or battle down these villains sometimes. Uh, he's thinking with his brain, and even though he knows he's going to have to get into conflict with Nero somehow, when he does, he goes all out at the very beginning, not wanting to try and just sort of take it easy on him. He knows he has to take him down quickly if he wants to get Alan away from all of this. So, good thinking on Kyle's part. Page 10, panel 4, it's a different construct again, but it is a construct that Kyle has used. It's a little different here. It's it's obviously a giant turtle. It's obviously Gamera here, except this time he's giving him a bit of ram horns look. So technically, if they're following the whole can't-do-the-same construct over again, this isn't the same one. It's just very similar. But yeah, that's definitely a Gamera there. It's a bipedal turtle with a spiky shell on the back, breathing fire. So, yeah, Gamera's in the book once again. He's made of turtle meat. Page 12, you see Alan being pretty adamant about Kyle taking down this guy Nero, and you think when Alan Scott, who's been in a few tussles 
with some pretty major villains says that you need to take a guy down, you've got to imagine this is a serious threat. You've got a person who's been fighting for quite a long while as a superhero, and he says that this foe is definitely someone that you're not going to be able to just kowtow to. It also lends a lot of credence to the fact that this is a more powerful villain than Kyle has ever come up against. So I like the fact that Alan Scott is here iterating the fact that Kyle is not just fighting some dumb guy in a superhero suit or a power suit. This is a real menace to society here. Page 14, we get our uh, little interlude with Guy and John here. And thankfully, in these couple of pages, Guy isn't re being written so much as the self-centered jerk that we've seen in the previous issues. But he does get some negative points here for using the word boyos. In fact, he says, you know, when he knows where Alex Nero is from, he says, it's on the news, boyos. And unfortunately, I don't attribute that to sort of, I guess you might think it'd be more Irish or Scottish or somewhere in the UK. I don't know particular sort of slang there. I attribute boyos to the use of Jar Jar Binks, or Jar Jar Binks using it in the uh, Star Wars prequels, and that should never be associated with Guy Gardner, ever. Ever. Pages 15 through 18, we had a good setup of Nero's character here, um, saying that when he was in, in the institution, he was taking medication that was supposed to affect, uh, supposed to help his psychoaffective or schizoaffective disorder, but it didn't seem to be working. We get the uh, idea that he might have killed his parents, but there was never any proof to whether he did it. Plus that he was also visited by the Cordians. And it's also the fact that he's an artist. So this is kind of what would have happened if Kyle was an evil character. If you've got someone who's got that sort of creativity that Kyle does, but can channel it in, into a and more evil manner, and plus also has, obviously, psychopathic tendencies, it's going to make for a great villain for Green Lantern, and I'm liking what's going on with this. But my uh, last note is on the uh, two-page splash that we have at the end of the book, which is a really nice shot of Daryl Banks drawing the Justice League, except I don't know why, why Kyle is sort of squatted down in the sort of Spider-Man-type pose, but... You know, I guess it's a way to accentuate the characters behind him. We've got from left to right, we've got Aquaman still with his harpoon arm. We've got Guy Gardner as Warrior, which is awesome to see him as Warrior. We don't get to see him as much, and we should have. He should have been in the Day of Judgment storyline. I still can't believe he wasn't there. We've got the Wally West Flash. We've got Wonder Woman. We've got Plastic Man behind Superman. We've got the Martian Manhunter, and of course, we've got Batman. They all look really great. It's it's the sort of uh, Grant Morrison-era Justice League, and it's really nice. I mean, even though Guy Gardner technically isn't part of it, having Guy helping fight uh, this character or go after this Alex Nero character is really great. And I'm glad that at least Winnick is trying to use Guy Gardner Warrior a bit more in the storyline, so enjoying that. But yeah, overall, again, a bit feeling like it's written for the trade, but not so much that I felt like I lost money on the book, like the book didn't really satisfy me. There was enough there to keep me entertained and give me a story to read. So 
I really enjoyed it. Hopefully there'll be some ads here to enjoy as well, as I'm going to go take a quick look at those. The front inside cover is an advertisement for a PlayStation video game, which has a sort of balding businessman leaping out of a building and, I guess, falling towards his death, and we see him as he falls out of the building screaming. Then there's some sort of image of this red-headed guy with a volcano on his head, and the volcano is exploding, and steam is coming out of his ears. The title says, or at least the uh, cover copy on it says, Take this moment to rest, and then at the bottom it says, Incredible Crisis, Severe Fun. It doesn't mention what game it is, and there's stuff at the bottom, really small print, but I can't see exactly what the name of the game is. If anyone knows what it is or cares what it is, they can write in. Personally, don't care. A few pages in, we get an advertisement for Corn Nuts, the uh, surprisingly hardcore corn snacks in seven mean flavors, as we get a sort of weird, campy image of ears of corn with eyes atop of them being held in jail, I guess because they're criminal corn stalks, criminal corn on the cob. Uh, okay, I guess that's a way to sell corn nuts, sure. Then again, showing that this magazine is trying to go for the more hip demographic, we get an advertisement for the Finger Eleven album. Uh, what's the album's name? I guess it's their uh, self-titled album called Finger Eleven, and it's got the song First Time on it. I really don't know. I, aside from Paralyzer, I've never really heard that much from Finger Eleven. So there you go. They look like a typical late 90s, early 2000s band, so if that gives you any idea. The next page is an advertisement for the PlayStation version of uh, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Rogue Spear, another first-person shooter game where I guess you play the Rainbow Six and go hide and shoot things. Haven't played any of that either. I, I think Doom and Quake and Unreal and Unreal Tournament were about the last first-person shooters that I played. I never got into the console-type games, so there you go. After that, we get an ad for Fantavision. I guess it's a fireworks game for the PlayStation 2 where you set off fireworks. I guess it's to sort of take advantage of the PlayStation 2's graphics capabilities. Um, sure, why not? Then near the middle of the book, you get a two-page uh, advertisement for Crash Bash, which I guess is a Crash Bandicoot, looks like a mini-game sort of game, where I guess you play mini-games, but it's weird. It's got essentially two sort of Vietnam-era soldiers with a camouflage, you know, sort of traipsing through a swamp, you know, up to their shoulders almost in the water, and you've got the uh, Crash Bandicoot character with his ridiculous grin in the same reed-filled wa waters as them. Weird advertisement for, obviously, a weird game. Bandicoots. We get that same abstract uh, sort of photo collage painting for Sprite Cola, that's uh, all the different things you can do with Sprite Cola, like call cell phones, ride bicycles, and rollerblade, and 
use the computer. So those are things that you can do while drinking a Sprite. Delicious. Another anti-drug ad for self-respect of a young sort of black youth saying, you know, your friend wants you to smoke that wacky weed. I don't know what wacky weed is, but I guess. And you don't want to, or you don't know what to say to them. Try this. No, absolutely not. I have more respect for my body than that. And it gives you a bunch of things that uh, you could say to a person who tries to offer you wacky weed because drugs are bad kids. Don't use drugs. Then after that is an advertisement for some more some more Looney Tunes types games. This one looks like a Daffy Duck Racer game that's uh, kind of akin to Mario Kart on the PlayStation 2. Uh, there's a variety of Looney Tunes games. There's a space race, a racing one, and then I can't see what the one in the corner is. It looks like it might be Bugs Bunny and the Tasmanian Devil doing something. I can't tell. Say Space Race, Bugs Bunny and Taz, Time Busters, and Looney Tunes Racing. So two race games and a Bugs Bunny and Taz game. There you go. Seems like there's a few less ads in this book. The last ad in the, uh, well, not the last ad, the back inside cover has an ad for new Sour Skittles, which I guess appear out of the sky from lightning bolts and rainbows fall into the forest and people pick them up there. So yeah, eat your Skittles out of the forest. Then the uh, back inside cover is an advertisement for another Spyro game. I guess that's Spyro Year of the Dragon for the PlayStation 2. Uh, never played it. I guess Spyro on this image has uh, cooked a couple of ducks and ducklings that were walking across the street. So, yeah, there you go. That reminds me, I need to go get some lunch. In fact, I'm going to go take a quick break, and once I get back, Probably not from lunch. I'll go ahead and take a look at our next issue in the Circle of Fire storyline, which is Green Lantern and the Atom in Green Lantern and the Atom number one. Or number only. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics, because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you're making me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. Hey, kids, comics. Still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com
And we are back. So let's go ahead and do what we always do. As I always say that we're always going to do it. Yeah, let's go ahead and go into Green Lantern and the Atom, number one. This one was cover dated October 2000 and released on August 23rd of 2000, had a cover price of 250 US and 395 Canada, and had a title of The Usual Suspects, or just Usual Suspects. Although it would be kind of humorous at the end if we found out that the Adam was actually Kaiser Soze. Anyhow, the writer was Brian K. Vaughn, the penciler was Trevor McCarthy, the anchor was Tyson McAdoo, or McAdoo, maybe. Letter was Sean Conant. The colorist was Tom McCraw. Separations were by William Moose Bowman. The assistant editor was Frank Berrios. And the editor was Matt Idelson. Letting out a Darth Vader level of no, Dr. Ray Palmer, better known as the size-shifting hero, The Atom, ponders why he got cousin Green Lantern's Hunter and Forrest involved in tracking down the nightmare-inducing villain, the Scarecrow. This can be explained by jumping back one hour and 42 minutes ago, where on the Moonbase Watchtower, Professor Palmer explains to Hunter and Forrest the scientific method of tracking down the creator of the villain Oblivion. Scanning through the JLA files, the Atom narrows down the list of suspects to four villains with the capability of creating such a powerful force. The first one happens to be in New York City, so the trio hit the teleporter and start to mingle with the citizens of the city that never sleeps. This brings us back to the subway encounter with Scarecrow, where Hunter and Forrest are succumbing to the fear gas as the ring sits just out of reach next to the energized third rail. But fortunately for the twins, the Atom happened to be wearing rubber soles on his boots, allowing to, to boot the ring back to Forrest, and Forrest to turn the nightmares back on their creator. The trio apprehend the villain, but find that he has no connection to the Oblivion problem, so it's back to the Watchtower for the Cadmium Cousins. But a convenient police bulletin of metahuman causing havoc at a local college gives another reprieve for the Teen Lanterns. Cut to Barnard College, where the diminutive Dr. Psycho is using his ectoplasmic powers to terrorize females on the campus. Hunter rushes in to take on Psycho, but is attacked by a giant version of Schrodinger's cat. We'll get the reference later. Fleeing the ferocious feline, Hunter tosses the ring to Forrest, who proceeds to beat the misogynistic midget with constructs of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. So, with suspect number two discounted, the team heads off to their third and most dangerous suspect, the mechanoid inventor, Dr. Ivo. Reaching the mutated menace, the Atom confronts Ivo about his creation of the Bolivian android, but Ivo claims that he hasn't created any androids recently. Except for the one that he sicks on her heroes. Hunter rings up a construct Gulliver to take down the giant robot, while the Atom shrinks down and enters Ivo's brain with the threat of snapping some synaptic pathways. And once again, the search for Oblivion's creator is fruitless, as Ivo admits to knowing nothing about the despot. With only one person left on the list of possible creators of Oblivion, the team head to Kyle Rayner's apartment to check on Dr. Light, who apparently was trapped inside Kyle Rayner's power battery. Unfortunately, he's still trapped there, causing Adam to doubt the logic behind his search. But before Ray can go all mopey and emo, Hunter gets a call from Kyle on her ring, a call to meet up at the remnants of Oa where the lanterns are preparing for a final battle with Oblivion.
again, we get another really good story by Brian K. Vaughn, which is to be expected. But what's holding me back for this book of getting in a really good grade would be the art. Trevor McCarthy has a very anime-influenced style, with the characters having a look of something that just might have left off the pages of a One Piece manga. The faces look all cartoony and awkward, and their mouths take up a majority of the faces. The Adam is especially affected by this art style, as he more often than not looks more buffoonish than heroic. But at least the story, which has our heroes go after the villains who probably could have created a villain like Oblivion, makes up for the shortcomings of the art. Let's go take a look at some of that art, starting off with a cover, which again is really nothing spectacular, but it is significantly better than the interior art. Carrie Norton and Mark Lipka from the GL Adam Strange book do the uh, cover, and the characters at least look like the superheroes rather than some anime characters. So I kind of prefer the art on the cover, and I think maybe Nord and uh, Lipka probably would have been a better fit for this comic than Trevor McAdoo and or Trevor McCartney and Mark McAdoo. Sorry, Tyson McAdoo. But then, moving into the book, page one, panel one, and it so it begins. The Adam has his mouth so open, so wide that essentially you can see every tooth in it. No one's mouth is supposed to open that wide in reality. Plus, his hands are contorted in a way that looks like he's missing some joints in his fingers or might have elongated digits. It's it's not that the art is bad. It's just a style that I really don't care for. It's, like I said, it's it's very anime-influenced in, in a way that I'm really not just wanting to see in my superhero comic. And it gets even worse here on page two, as it looks like Hunter and Forrest... Get it? The two Green Lanterns who are supposedly Kyle Rayner's offspring or descendants or whatever. Hunter and Forrest. Uh, oh, well. The the way the art looks, they're supposed to be clutching each other or holding each other, but it looks like they're almost fused together. I, I can't tell where one person begins and the other one ends. It's all just weird. Maybe that's something, uh, an effect of the... Uh, Scarecrow nerve gas that's causing their bodies to fuse together. That'd be creepy. Page three is we sort of flash back to the Adam and the Green Lantern twins on the uh, Watchtower. Supposedly in the future, there was all the descendants of Kyle's family grouping together as the Team Lanterns and sharing the one ring between all of them. I mean, how does that work? I mean... Does one person get to use the lantern ring or get to use the green lantern ring at one time and they just pass it off to each other? Wouldn't there be infighting over who'd be better suited to do that? Or maybe the uh, Rainer family or the Rainer offspring in the future are just so altruistic that they don't really care who uses the ring. They can effectively choose who's the best one to use it at the right time. It's an unusual concept, but comics. There you go. Page four, panel four. I'm going to give credit to Brian K. Vaughn that he actually references the fact that the Adam did the whole de-aging thing back to a teenager and was actually a member of the Teen Titans. Uh, I think that was around the Zero Hour issue where he kind of 
was de-aged and retained the memory of being the Atom. It's weird. I don't get it either. Page 5, and this goes along with the writing as well. The kids are definitely written as kids. They're brash and outrageous and not really the brightest, but they are well-educated. There's a little comment in here about them being homeschooled, and the Adam kind of looks down on that. But they're able to reference uh, such characters and such ideas of put forth from writers like Arthur Conan Doyle, Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, the works of Salvador Dali. So, again, being descendants of Kyle Rayner, they are artistically inclined, so it makes sense in the story. Of course, uh, Ray Palmer, being more scientifically minded, uh, refers to Occam, or Occam and Occam's Razor, which basically states that the simplest solution is almost often the the most correct one. So it's an interesting parallel of Adam being more scientifically minded, yet the uh, Teen Lanterns being more creative. Kind of, I guess, a difference between the left brain and the right brain. So again, we see parallels between the characters like we did with Adam Strange. So that's that's a bit deeper thought put into it than just your average you know green lantern story so i like it nothing i wouldn't expect from brian k vaughn though page seven panel one get a sort of inset shot of new york city and uh we get an image of the twin towers and i'm recording this a little bit after september 11th of uh, 2014 and it always kind of gets to me when uh when I see the images of the Twin Towers in comics prior to the the uh, destruction that happened in uh, 2001. It's it's always nice to see them in the comics, but it does make me feel a little melancholy when I see them here. Moving along in the book, after the Scarecrow fight, on page 11, panel 4, it looks like in the future that the Joker will become an artist of sorts, and that Forrest will draw inspiration when he was creating the creepy constructs to freak out the Scarecrow from some of the Joker's art. So, in the future, I guess, the uh, Joker becomes an artist? Sure, why not? Page 13, panel 3, as uh, Hunter and Forrest, I still can't get over those names, as Hunter and Forrest are looking at uh, Dr. Psycho and wondering how he, uh, well, just, sort of viewing what he's doing to the various denizens of this college campus, they make a comment about the lame names of the villains in the future, that all the good names for villains have been taken here in the past, and in the future they have to face villains like the liver, which I can only assume uses his power to give people cirrhosis. So it's a debilitating disease, and I'm certain, yeah, that's a horrible villain to have to face, but yeah, the liver... Not the most threatening villain. Page 15, panel 3. Uh, the Adam and Forrest get attacked by an image brought forth by Dr. Psycho of Schrodinger's cat. Now, if you don't know what the reference of Schrodinger's cat is, it's essentially a, well, an a reducto ad absurdum of the scientist who says that things can occupy... Basically, uh, I'm doing a horrible job explaining it. W. Blaine Dowler would do a better job. He's saying that observation of an experiment can change the outcome of it. And the concept was if there is a cat in a box where you can't see what's going on to the cat 
and that cat is exposed to radiation or poison, inside that box the cat can be both alive or dead. And it's not until you observe what has happened to the cat that you'll actually determine what happened. So I'm probably doing a poor explanation of that. Hopefully if uh, W. Blaine Dowler, who does some incredibly inventive science uh, uh, science podcast, if he ever does like one of his sci-fi superhero things, maybe he can go more into the idea of Schrodinger's cat and explain it better than I have. Page 16, we have Hunter beat up uh, Dr. Psycho with a bunch of little women constructs, and I I guess that's fitting justice, as he seems to be kind of a misogynistic character. I know he's gone up against Wonder Woman primarily, but I really know very little, no pun intended, about this character, so I couldn't really tell you if that's you know, a, a just defeat for Dr. Psycho, so there you go. Page 17, panel 4. I don't know when Professor Ivo turned himself into like an Archie Bunker version of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Last time I knew he was essentially just a human scientist, and now he looks like this sort of pudgy lizard character. It's weird. But I do know that Professor Ivo is an intelligent creator, and he obviously created the Amazo android, which has always been a thorn in the side of the Justice League. So I like that here on page 20, we see the Atom, as a shrinking hero, do something really effective. What he has done is he's shrunken himself down, entered into Ivo's brain, and is preparing to, well, basically snap some synapses in there. Or synapse, yeah, synapse, that's the proper pronunciation. Uh... It's an effective use of a character who could shrink. You know, most of the time when you think of characters like the Atom, you're like, really? You get small. That's all you can do. That's sort of like the Flash. Oh, you can run fast? That's not really all that effective. Until you realize the different things that they can do. The Flash not only can run fast, but he can vibrate his body. He can use that to pass through things or pass his hand into someone and then, you know, vibrate their body to death. The Atom's doing his effective, he's being effective in shrinking by shrinking down and going inside someone's brain and threatening to snap vital parts of it away. He could possibly do this, you know, go into someone's heart and, you know, close off one of their arteries, causing them to have a heart attack and, if not die, at least pass out. So it's effective use of a superhero's abilities. And I, I like it in this book. Page 21, I don't really get this. I could have sworn that the last time we saw Dr. Light was in Green Lantern number 80, right before the final night where Hal reignited the sun. And at that point in time, he escaped from Kyle's power battery and buggered off to parts unknown, never be seen from again. I mean, never. I mean, he was never seen from again. He didn't come back to do anything horrible to any member of the Justice League never came back to possibly rape and murder someone. So I don't know why he'd still be in the power battery. Maybe that's where he has been all this time. And he never got out of it and never was able to go out and horribly brutalize someone. So I I like to believe this history in this book right now. So, But then my final note is on page 22, where the kids find a sketch of the Emerald Knight, one of the other Green Lanterns that... uh, met up with the characters on the watchtower 
and they find a sketch of it in Kyle's apartment, which kind of lends more credence to all of Lanterns being made up by Kyle rather than them coming through various alternate dimensions or different timelines to help out. So it's interesting what's being set up in this Circle of Fire story, and I'm, so far I'm really enjoying it, the, especially the uh, stories that have been written by Brian K. Vaughn. Those have been excellent so far. Despite the fact that the artists look kind of wonky, it was a good issue, and so far the story overall has been really good, so I'm looking forward to the next one. And I'm definitely looking forward to the next record, because not only do we get the fourth part of the Green Lantern story dealing with uh, Alex Nero, the When Rome Burn story, but we also deal with the uh, third story or the third issue of the Green Lantern Circle of Fire story, where Green Lantern, the mechanized robot, teams up with Firestorm. And if you know anything about Firestorm, you know I'm probably going to have a guest host on. I wonder who that could be. Well, I guess you'll just have to wait for seven days to find out. Or you probably know anyway, because it's Firestorm. No one is more a fan of this guy, of Firestorm than this guy. But both he and I will be back on that show in seven days, and hopefully you'll be back as well. So we'll catch you in seven for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, take care, folks. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you, you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Perfect Circle, from R.E.M., off their album, Murmur. If you'd like to buy this album... Or if you'd like to buy any album by R.E.M., I'd probably suggest a less depressing one than Burmer, you can go to a myriad number of places to find them. You could go to your record store. You could go to iTunes. But if you're smart, you'll go to Amazon.com. And if you're incredibly smart and incredibly generous, you'll use the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon banner in the upper left-hand corner of the homepage, you can be transported to Amazon.com where any purchase you make, whether it be Murmur, whether it be 
automatic for the people, whether it be, oh, the one with Orange Crush on it. I don't know all the R.E.M. albums. Whatever it may be, anything that you've purchased through the link at tutorfreaks.com shoots a little bit of your money that you spend on the item back to Tutor Freaks. It doesn't cost you anything extra, so you don't feel a pinch in your pocket, but Amazon just basically is kind enough to give us a little money. So if you're ever thinking of buying music, movies, DVDs, whatever from Amazon, please, please use the link at tutorfreaks.com.